You are listening to Written in the Stars, Books and Beyond, where hosts from the LCC Library sit down with writers, publishers, entrepreneurs, and literary enthusiasts of all types. Join your host, Amy Ewald, Robin Moore, John Salaiji, and Abby Tebow as we explore the very heart of the written word. Welcome to Written in the Stars, Books and Beyond. I'm your host, Amy Ewald, and I have my co-host, John Salaiji, here today. And today we have our author, Susan Serafin Jess, and she's here to discuss her book, Wild Horses, A Crime Revisited. This book tells a tale of true passion and forbidden romance during the summer of 1967, when Sarah Barclay killed the husband of a woman she had fallen hard for. Susan Serafin Jess investigates this unique case and attempts to unravel the history behind it while mixing in her own recollections and memories. In this part true crime, part memoir, we begin to understand a very different time for young women and how our memories often tell their own version of events. Hi, Susan. Thank you Hi. for being here. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> yeah, we're happy to have you. So I want to open our discussion today with a question about uh, true crime and the genre. This is something that we see. We see lots of true crime stories, uh, movies, television, biographies all over. So why do you think people are so drawn to, to true crime stories? Well, that's a good question. You know, a lot of people have looked into this, and it's mostly women. Women for most of the fan base for true crime. And some people think that's because women see it as a way of learning how to protect themselves, you know? Yeah. You know, maybe not walk by a white van in the parking lot. <laughs> uh, I think um, no, that's just kind of a joke. But in fact, they're, they're, I think they think that they are warding off evil by learning about these evil predators and that maybe they can protect themselves that way. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very true statement to, to think about, especially about women having to kind of think ahead, think what's coming, what could potentially come. And so this, this book in particular deals with a true crime, a story that happened. So, so what drew you to this particular case? And tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Well, several years ago, my sisters and I were talking about horses. Horses were central to my mother's life. She loved horses. And we remembered back when mom had us in 4-H. My sisters rode horses. I was afraid of horses. Sorry, mom. I know that was a disappointment. So I showed my dog. But uh, my sisters were in 4-H and they were part of a group. And there was an older woman who was kind of an advisor to the group, and her name was Sarah Barkley. And I, we remembered that she had been involved in some kind of shooting. And so we were saying, whatever happened to Sarah Barkley? Because we moved out of the area a little bit after it happened, so we didn't know what the outcome was. We couldn't even remember. We knew it was a lover's triangle, but we couldn't remember sh- whom had shot whom. Um, I was pretty sure that Sarah was the shooter, but I wasn't certain. So, you know, my sisters were content to just kind of scratch their heads and wonder. But I, since I lived in Lansing, I went down to the Library of Michigan and looked in the microfilm and found old newspapers and discovered that she had been convicted of manslaughter. She had gone to Detroit House of Corrections for a 15-year sentence, but she died not even two years in at the age of 26. So I was really intrigued by all of that and started following the thread. 
So you mentioned you had kind of a memory of this, but your research really came from going to the library, which, of course, for me and Amy is an <laughs> uh, issue near and dear to our hearts. Um, you talk about your research process, some mm -hmm. in the book, and I was hoping you could talk more about that, um, you know, what you did for research and what you found, what you didn't find. Oh, okay. That's a good question. Yes, I mentioned the library because that's where I started and I looked at uh, microfilm mostly, mm -hmm. but I also uh, discovered something called a farm plat book, which I didn't even know there was such a thing, but a librarian, I said, I can't find this woman's address in the newspapers. It's just listed as route four, but I can't find her in the city directory. And she said, well, maybe you need to look on the farm plat book. So I did. So that's just one example of, of learning about some, what to me was an obscure source that gave me some information. Um, so I kind of exhausted everything I could from the newspapers, and I jotted down names such as the name of the prosecutor, uh, the name of the defense attorney, and then I started trying to find these people. Well, since it had happened in 1967, and I was researching this in the new millennium, unfortunately, a lot of the people involved were dead. All three people involved in the lover's triangle were dead. Uh, but I was able to reach some people. And most people would talk to me. So that, those were interviews. That was another form of research. Documents were the hardest to get a hold of mm -hmm. because everything happened so long ago that it hadn't been digitized. So I couldn't find things online. Yeah. Um, it took me several years to hunt down the appeal transcript and her death certificate. It's interesting because... Um as you were describing your research process and in the book to kind of your memories brought up a lot of memories for me too. My first job actually was at a title insurance company where I went through the farm plat books and I would like help do the title insurance for these plots of land. And so as you described those, I remember vividly like the farm plat books, right? And so, and another thing you describe in your book is doing the research uh, maybe it's at it was at Marshall Library, a small a small library um, in that part of the state. Not at Marshall, but in that part of the state was where I had my first library job <laughs> as a librarian, and I was oversaw the local history room. So I handled those types of questions. And here I am like fresh out of library school and didn't really know the area or that kind of thing. And I would feel, you know, those kinds of questions that came in. So your memories have brought up like a bunch of memories with me as well. And I think that's really interesting the way uh, memory kind of works like that. And I, and I see a lot of that in your book as well. Um, you know, kind of about memory that seems to be another big theme of your book. Definitely. Yeah, I had gone to the Marshall Library to look at yearbooks because I wanted to see pictures of Sarah and um, just to see what, you know, what girls looked like then because she didn't look like the other girls. And there was just, you mentioned getting the job just out of college. Mm -hmm. The person in charge of, of the history room it wasn't a room, it was just an area, but it, Marshall was also a very young person, you know, and so, uh -huh. you know, when I was talking about this thing that had happened in 1967, I thought, well, she wasn't alive in 1967, but that's okay, she was helpful. Um, and then my friend and I also went to the cemetery, which I write about in the book, but we, we couldn't find her uh, 
grave, even though we had directions. So I've got to go back. So, so you you haven't been able to find her her grave yet at all. Oh, I think I could now. Oh, just, you could now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just got uh, busy doing other things. Uh, sure. Sure. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> Memory is a a pretty big theme throughout the book. Um, Actually, one quote that I I really enjoyed was, memory is like a game of telephone, except instead of a whispered word changing from child to child, it is whispered by a remembered version of ourself to a series of subsequent selves and arrives here in the present garbled. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So, um, So memory is very fallible. How did your own memories sort of influence your writing and influence your story? How did you incorporate them in there? Yes, I write a lot about memory in the book. And, you know, concurrent with writing this book and trying to find old documents, I was searching my own memory, but it was also at the same time that my mom had Alzheimer's. So I was thinking a lot about memory. And she, I I think I mentioned in the book, I asked her, do you remember Sarah Barkley? She thought hard. She said, I remember somebody raucous. That was the only word she could come up with was raucous. Um, I, I think that mostly what I what I found myself thinking about as I was delving into my memory was what life was like for girls when I was growing up and what it was like to be a girl who was different. And in Sarah's case, she was different because she was... Uh, well, we didn't have language that we have now. I think maybe if she were a young person now, she might describe herself as non-binary or gender fluid. I don't know. But back then, she was just kind of, she stood out in this small town as looking like a dude, you know. And they were very, even, it was a little bit loosening up by the time I was in high school. But it was really pretty restrictive about what it meant to be a girl. I think I mentioned in the book, for example, this is before high school, but in elementary school, I had wanted to be on the safety patrol, but girls couldn't be on the safety patrol. I'm still bitter about that, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, you even do mention, I think, in one point about different advertisements for women for jobs um, during that time and the things very specific things that women were allowed to do in the in the job and career fields and that. So talking about women, girls, in this time, there's a lot of parts of the book where you talk about young, young people, right? Young people both in 1967. I think everyone in the book is pretty much a young person in 1967. You were a child... Um, I think Sir Barkley was pretty young, and uh, everyone involved in in the triangle in that situation was pretty young too. Do you know how old like she was and the other folks involved in that? Were? Well, let's see. She died at age twenty six, and that was oh. in nineteen sixty nine. So at the time when the crime happened, she would have been twenty three. Okay. Yeah, twenty three. And that makes a lot of a lot of sense, I guess. Thinking about. Um, you know, you talk about their experiences, comparing it to your students' experiences, you know, in, I guess, this day and age, if you want to say. And so um, what are some of the, you've talked a little bit about, like, the differences in expectations of uh, girls and young women. Um, what are some of the similarities and differences between uh, young people in 1967 and your students? 
Well, that's a good question. As you know, as we were talking about before the show, I am retired, but it hasn't been that long, so I do remember students. And one thing that surprises me, and it's in some respects, the gender roles for my students at LCC were still kind of fixed. I remember having a discussion once about that they thought that it was important that the in heterosexual couples that the man should be taller than the woman. Mm. Well, for them, boys and girls. And yeah. I was kind of surprised that they would feel that way. I, I remember kind of saying, really? In 2023, you think the man has to be taller? And they said, yeah, because he protects the, the girl. And I thought, mm. oh. So, you know, some of that's still here. But, but on the other hand, I think that um, certainly I've had transgender students at LCC. And I think even, even those students I have from smaller towns are much more tolerant of, of people being gay than they used to. I mean, it just wasn't even talked about when I was in high school. I would imagine that would be um, a challenging part of writing this book, too, because people weren't allowed to identify that way then, and other people just didn't talk about it. So telling Sarah's story was probably challenging because... You had to draw some inferences, but you don't want to draw too many, you know, draw too many inferences. So I imagine that was a challenge. And did you how did you feel kind of addressing that aspect of this the story with the information you had? Oh, you're right. That was that was a real source of um, concern and anxiety for me was I don't want to out people who weren't out. Now, Sarah was dead, and I talked to enough people who were close to her who confirmed that she was lesbian, that I felt comfortable about that. But the other woman in the triangle, I don't know how she identified. She, After her husband died, she did go on to marry another man. Now, um, she has also passed away, but she has children living, um, as did the man who was shot. So I had to be very careful about the language that I used. And I, I, I don't know that I completely resolved it, but I tried to keep stating my concerns about outing people and not really know, knowing, you know, it's, it's on the legal record that her husband thought that she was um, having a lesbian relationship with Sarah and didn't like it. In fact, well, he, he threatened to kill her and throw acid in her right. face. So it's, it's, it's on the record, but at the same time, it's, it was still also thought by Sarah's defense attorney that maybe they were using that word to prejudice the jury. So, yeah, it was, it was a dilemma. Do you think, um, because you also talk a, a bit about um, Sarah's trial and the court proceedings and that, do you, do you think the, the trial or the outcome of the trial would be different today than what happened in 1967? I've thought about that a lot. I think so for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I like to think that we've come a long way in, in understanding different sexual or gender orientation, sexual orientation. But also, and this part I'm not so enthusiastic about, but there does seem to be more support for Stand Your Ground. And it seemed to me as though that's what she was doing. Um, I don't know how I always feel about that, but in many 
places you are allowed to defend yourself if you're being attacked. But as you probably know from reading the chapter about manslaughter, I didn't realize it's not just a matter of, oh, I think this person is going to kill me. I'm going to defend myself. You have to be struck with fists and you have to be struck to the ground and you have to have no means of escape. Those three things have to be present for it to be considered self-defense. And Joanne and her sister in the trial said, no, he just pushed her against the car. She didn't fall. But then another witness said that he was wailing on her. And to me, wailing is like a beating. And he was somebody else who had passed away, so I never got a chance to talk to him. I did talk to his widow. And she said that he had never talked about it with her ever. It's really interesting, the differences in witness testimony um, that you highlight in this book and in a book that's about memory as well, because there's been a lot of research about, you know, witness testimony and memory and how um, reliable that is. So, again, I find it interesting to bring memory in, you know, as a theme in these big issues where memory is fallible, right? And so I don't know if there's anything else about memory that really played into this book, because I just see it all, all, all throughout the book. Well, you're right about witness memory, and I guess that that's why uh, they say that, that, that eyewitness testimony is not necessarily the best evidence. I mean, anymore, there's, there's DNA and, and surveillance of electronics that kind of can cinch things, but I think that eyewitnesses are, you know, their, their memories are fallible, um, it's also interesting the the different language that people will use. I just mentioned about um, Mr. Dobbins being quoted in the appeal as saying that um, that her assailant was just wailing on Sarah. And so, you know, I, one thing that I had to do often in this book was to look up words and make sure I knew mm-hmm. what, what they meant. Sure. And, you know, wailing does imply a beating. So that's what he saw. But then in the newspaper, they would use language. Um, well, I did until I got my hands on the appeal, which took many, many phone calls. And, and it turned out that there it was right in the archives next to the Library of Michigan yeah. all, all that time that I'd called all these different institutions. Um, but in the, in the appeal, the language is, is, that's quoted is very vulgar, but that never made it into the newspapers so that people who had would have read this um, at the time, would not have known exact that the newspaper accounts were very slanted against her um, and didn't really say or show how menacing he was. So again, that would play into the collective memory of the community. Although, as I mentioned in the book, in, in the community, this crime is not that well known because it was overshadowed by another crime that happened at the same time. You mentioned a lot about words, and I'm sure as a writer, words are absolutely essential. And I think that, you know, definitely comes out in when you talk about the testimony and your answer there. So thinking from a writing standpoint, I guess kind of beyond this book, what are you working on now? What what are you writing? Well, I just finished a book of poetry. It's called Musée, and Musée is the French word for museum. 
and in case you think I'm being pretentious, I'm not. Well, I kind of am. But uh, all my poetry book titles end on a vowel. So I thought, muse, I like that better than museum. It's muse. And uh, when I was teaching, for the first uh, day, we always had an icebreaker called the Museum of Me. And I would ask students to locate a personal artifact and then tell its story. So this book is artifacts from my life and the, and the different stories. So that's what I just finished. But I have started investigating a new nonfiction book, mm-hmm. uh, which is about a family member whose life and death are both shrouded in mystery. There's a good word, shrouded. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had kind of frustrating two weeks trying to reach out to people and just in the last two days, a couple of people have gotten back to me. In fact, when, when we're done, I'm going to scurry home and, and call one of them. So that's, that's my next project. Oh, I, I look forward to that project. You had me at mystery, so I'm a big fan, <laughs> big fan of mystery and um, the true crime stuff I really enjoy. Thanks for talking with us today. I think that it's, it's been great. Your book is uh, very unique, has a very unique voice, and I like the melding of the memoir and the true crime. So thanks for joining us. Thank Susan. you. You have been listening to Written in the Stars, Books and Beyond. Visit lcc.edu library to find the titles discussed in this episode. You can find previous episodes of Written in the Stars and other LCC Connect shows at lccconnect.com. In the words of Miguel de Amuno, I hope, reader, we shall meet again and we shall recognize each other.